Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We get informed by a gentleman from the Richmond Fed. Jeffrey Lacker came out of University of Wisconsin-Madison and had to step into maybe the biggest shoes and biggest cultural moment in Fed America, and that was all of the heritage and the conservative ethos of the Richmond Fed. Dr. Lacker joins us uh, this morning, the former Richmond Fed president. Jeff, just a perfect time to speak to you as well. If I walked down my hallway at home and I threw half my books out, Jeff, because I'm blind like two years ago, I kept all the textbooks. There's Mankiw, there's Abel Bernanke, there's uh, Carlin Soskis. There's all these great books, including what you studied in 101 at Wisconsin. Is any of this Fed moment, this theory, this framework, is any of this Fed process in the textbooks? I think so. I think that uh, the empirical record of the Federal Reserve over the last uh, 100 years or more that they've been around uh, shows repeated instances of them pivoting from a concern about promoting demand and growth to a concern about um, trying to fight inflation. Um, Their record is um, not that great. I think less than half of the time have they done it without successfully that is reduced inflation without successfully, without pushing the um, economy into a recession uh, by overdoing it. It's uh, hard to do because of the lags involved. And they've um, set out a course for themselves this year, and they've, they've got a tough job this year, for sure. Are, are, are they going to move forward? And do you have confidence they can move forward and recalibrate and adjust with stability? Or do you suggest there is instability risk? I think they're threading a needle. Um, I think they have to tighten um, rapidly enough to uh, ease demand and and ease inflation, um, cool down inflation. But I think that they um, are going to be mindful of not uh, going too fast and pushing the economy into the recession. I think they're all going to be mindful of SOMS rule. Uh, This is this amazingly consistent empirical regularity that the unemployment rate never rises more than five tenths of a percentage point without rising two or three percent percentage points. So, you know, without the economy tipping into inflate into a recession. So they're going to be they're going to be on uh, eggshells this year. Jeff, what it, would it take to slow things down? I just want to understand that from your perspective, because clearly that number has shifted in the last 10 years and shifted quite a lot. And clearly it's different with inflation at 7% compared to, say, inflation down at 2 What do you think it would take? Um, so they'd have to get the real rate positive, um, perhaps up to 1% or 2%. And if they got inflation down to 2%, that would take obviously 3 or 4% uh, nominal rate on the Fed funds rate. Don't have to get there overnight. Uh, can get there in a year or two, but to lay out the expectation so that markets understand it, that's about where uh, the Fed funds rate is likely to be at the end of 2023. I think that's what it's going to take. That's well north of where their dot plot is, as you know. I wonder, Jeff, how you would think that the balance sheet reduction would play into that as well. Is that something that complements that effort, something that replaces it? What would it mean? I think I, So I've been in the camp uh, for a while of thinking that the balance sheet 
is kind of small beer uh, relative to funds rates um, increases. So I, I don't think the balance sheet, I think they ought to roll off the balance sheet and they ought to get about it rapidly and soon. But um, I, I don't think that that's the major um, determinant of the stance of monetary right, policy right now, it's sort of a marginal effect. Um, so um, yeah, I think they need to um, you know focus on the funds rate and getting that going. Do you think, uh, Jeff, that Fed Chair Jay Powell has been a good communicator through all this? I, you know, yeah, given the hand he's been dealt in terms of what to communicate by the committee. Yeah, but I think um, there got to be a lot of my former colleagues um, on the Fed. I feel bad for who are looking back at the last year and feeling as if the Fed didn't play its hand very well. What um, they can you were, elaborate on that, sorry, Jeff? No, no, I, I sure. apologize for cutting you off. But can mm-hmm. you elaborate on no, which aspects, which moves they made that you think, in retrospect, were big mistakes? I'd sort of say two or three things. First, they they hamstrung themselves by placing them under this tactical constraint of um, giving the market a huge amount of notice before uh, they started tapering. So Powell said, you know, we're not even talking about talking about tapering. Well, that means you got to talk about it and then so on. I think that delayed their reaction and they, they felt compelled to go through this steady march of releasing discussions in the minutes before they started tapering. And they put on themselves the constraint that they weren't going to raise rates until they stopped um, t- that they stopped purchases. So I think that set them back materially. And, and I think you can see like around August and September, they realized they needed to start raising rates. They could have done it in October, November. But they were on this well, sort of tapering thing. Jeff, um, the second. No, yeah, please continue, Jeff. Continue. Sure. The sec- Well, the second thing is the way they think about maximum employment. I mean, they think of it the way uh, as 3.5 percent unemployment and the labor force participation rate back up to trend. And I think that caused them to misinterpret inflation in the first half of last year. I think they assumed, well, we must. There's a lot of slack in the economy. It can't be, um, inf- you know, a persistent inflation surge. And they were wrong because maximum employment last year was about where it was, about where actual employment was. We got to maximum employment. Maximum employment varies over time. It depends on all sorts of developments okay. in the economy. I don't think they take that on board. Jeff, this is a delicate question because we speak to all these people with immense, immense respect. But I'm going to suggest, Lacker's never heard me say this, Krugman and Lacker are on the same page, that we've got to go back to a much more traditional economics. And Jeff, for you, that's Wisconsin 1970 economics, which was one of the leading departments in the world at the time. Is the, is the regret of the Fed looking at John Williams, Richard Clarida, one of the founders of DSGE, that the Fed's getting too mathy? And they've got to get more conceptual about the real economy. Uh, so I, this idea about maximum employment varying over the cycle, I mean, that's been around a while. There's been some new empirical work on it by Robert Hall and Mariana Kudliak. But I, I don't think of that as, as a new idea. What I think they ought to go back to is before the last framework revision. I think the last framework was a mistake. It essentially took preemptive rate increases off the table. And I think in hindsight, last year would have been the ideal time uh, to uh, engage in that in the second half of the year, nudge, nudge the rate up a bit just to hedge your bets about whether inflation's persistent and transitory rather than putting all your eggs in the transitory basket. Um, but I think that the framework that took 
uh, preemptive rises, uh, rate increases off the table. I think that was a big mistake. So, Jeff, just finally, is this a failure of ex-post monetary policy? After all that effort to shift in that direction, are you saying it's failed and we should go back to what we used to do? I, I don't think that the new framework was a constructive step forward. I think that people took for granted uh, the price stability we had from 95 on, and I don't think they appreciated the extent to which well, you know, small preemptive moves were really okay. what established the credibility of the Fed. Jeff, this is, this is fiery language. Can they catch up and be preemptive at 2 p.m. this afternoon? I, I think um, I think they can, and it's going to play out over a couple of meetings. But I think, um, you know, they're they're at the next meeting. They'll release a summary of economic projections that'll have a, dot, a new dot plot, and that's an opportunity for them to spell out uh, that you know they anticipate a more aggressive um, uh, path. I think they could be more realistic in that dot in that summary of economic projections about inf- their inflation forecast. I, I don't think 2.6% is at all plausible at this point. I think inflation is likely to be 4% or north of that this, this uh, calendar year. Um, and I think they can spell out the extent to which they're going to, how they're going to respond to incoming data. Are they going to discount um, blips one way or another? Or are they going to get on top of um, uh, inflation if, and, and move the rate path up? if inflation comes in stronger uh, than expected the first half of the year. Jeffrey Lacker, formerly of the Richmond Fed. Jeff, fantastic to catch up with you. Bob Michael, he is Chief Investment Officer and Head of Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities at J.P. Morgan. John, that means he's Senior Vice President of Headaches and Guesstimates for all of J.P. Morgan. John, why don't you kick it off? I think that means he's busier than you and I. We're going to talk about the football later, Bob, so let's start with this one. Why do you want to sit in cash in this market with this backdrop? Well, I, I think there are a number of things going on. First, let me say, I think the Fed has played this month perfectly. And given all the chaos, it, that may seem to be um, a conundrum to a lot of people. But think about it. Uh, they got last year wrong. Inflation got away from them. They walked in this year. They admitted they got it wrong, went out there. All the FOMC members talked about all their tools were in play, then went into their quiet period and let us in the market hash it out. So they come into today's meeting knowing what the median expectations are. March liftoff, four rate hikes, QENs in March and some conversation about QT at the end of the year. They didn't have that information two weeks ago. So they are now playing it, I think, very smartly. My concern is those things won't be enough. The inflation genie is out of the bottle. They're going to try to thread the needle and go with the market consensus. I think we heard that from Waller. They don't want to surprise the markets. They got enough for this meeting. But we think down the road, they're going to have to accelerate a number of things, including rate hikes. We think they're going to have to go to every meeting, 25 basis points. And QT, we hope that's a Jackson Hole conversation that may be pulled forward. And then you have to watch the caps. Let's get into it. Before we get to the caps on balance sheet reduction, it's really, really important, really nuanced. We need to spend some time on that. You're looking at potentially a hike at every single meeting. Balance sheet reduction that could come earlier, maybe totaling 1.5 trillion through the end of 23. 
And you think that's what it's going to take to get inflation down. Bob, what does the market look like if they deliver everything you just said? John, you have to understand, central banks broke a 30-year promise to us. They told us the one mistake they would never make is to let inflation get away from them. And it has in every part of the world, in every economy. And now you listen to the Fed at the start of this month, they're back on their heels and they've got a fight ahead of them because inflation is getting entrenched. It's in the price of shelter. It's, it's in employment. They've got a couple tough months ahead to look at inflation data. So we think that the inflation battle is much bigger uh, than either they're estimating or admitting. So yes, they should bring forward those spikes. John, if they do four rate hikes this year, a year from now, we're looking at a 1% Fed funds rate. Deflate that by the inflation that's going on today. But Bob, that's minus 6 to 8%. A lot of people actually buy into the transitory idea, or at least that this will be a passing surge in inflation. That's actually the market uh, expectation. If you look at uh, Fed funds futures, if you look at some of those forward indicators in terms of break-even rates, what's the market getting wrong? What data points should uh, uh, traders be looking at to confirm the view that you put out there? They've been brainwashed by the last 20 years that inflation never goes higher than two, two and a half percent. So I agree, it's all transitory. Things will slow down, inflation will come down. But where will the economy slow down to? Still above trend. You've already closed the output gap. So you've got that inflationary pressure working as well. Where infl will inflation slow down to two and a half percent? I don't think so. I think over 3%. And by the way, the oil shocks in the 70s, those proved to be transitory too, but it took an awful lot of central bank ammunition to contain them. Can they stay on a measured dialogue, a measured cadence, a measured set of speeches? Or do they say, as you just stated, Bob, we're gonna move up four rate hikes, but along the way, we're gonna monitor and adjust and change if we have to. Why can't they say that? Well, I think they will, but I think today's meeting would be a lost opportunity if they just did that, because the next couple months of inflation data are gonna put them back on their heels again before it starts to slow down. So I'll give you that. So why not do something? Why not at least come in today and say, you know what, we've put out the schedule of large-scale asset purchases to Feb 15, that's the last one. And in that, a month early, that's kind of halfway priced into the market. Go with the four rate hikes, but leave the optionality there um, to, to go to every meeting. 50, I've heard a lot of discussion about 50 basis points at a conversation with a client yesterday. Um, and I think 50 basis points is pretty destructive. That reminds me of the end of the tightening regime in, in 1994, 1995. Yeah. Bob, can we just finish on the technical stuff? Because you did mention it, and I promised you some time on it. The balance sheet reduction that a lot of people expect now is about $1.5 from the middle of this year to the back end of 23. As you know, on the balance sheet at the moment, there's a ton of T-bills. Bob, you mentioned the word caps. How do you think they manage the roll-off? Well, when they were doing quantitative tightening previously, they had caps at, at $50 billion per month. We think that's a good starting point, but ultimately they should go to 100 billion in caps because the balance sheet is 
is a lot bigger, and they actually don't belong in meddling in the markets to the extent that they have. They don't belong owning as much of the mortgage market and the treasury market as they have. That should be left to free market participants like myself to price, not to the Fed, not in a recovery. But Michael, conviction trade right now, what is it? So my conviction, there's, there's been a lot of repricing in the market, um, but I'm still a seller of rallies. Can I also just ask, I heard that Bill Dudley's going to be on later. Yeah. I think the question you have to ask him is he brought financial conditions indices to the Fed, which is really a private markets concept. Of course, us in the markets love them, but is that really something that belongs at the Fed? Is that how they missed inflation? Because they were too concerned about people like me throwing our toys out of the baby carriage? And a question for Tom. Tom, I know you were around when Volcker raised rates from 5% to 20%. Can you imagine, I was there also, can you imagine if, if he looked at financial conditions indicators, what do you think he would have said and done? I think that's a really important question. This goes back to the landmark work of Michael Rosenberg at Bloomberg folks who put together this wonderful indices. I agree with you, Bob. It's been, it's been a new certitude with these indices that doesn't work in crisis or at pivot points. And I love Bill Dudley. I've known him for years. Brilliant well, I'm guy. I'm pleased you slipped that one in. That's good. Well, you threw Bob, him since, under the bus. Since you're you running great, the interview Bob. too now, Bob, do you want a final <laughs> comment on your beloved Liverpool as well? Do you want to squeeze they're, that they're in? Com they're coming on strong. And I'd be proud for them to have the David Ortiz <coughs> number fly uh, <laughs> during their next match. Okay. Bob Michael, thank you, sir. It's good to catch up, mate, as always. JP Morgan, Asset Management's Bob Michael. On fixed income now quickly, Marilyn Watson joins ahead of Global Fundamental Fixed Income Strategy at BlackRock. What will Jerome Powell do to your bond space this afternoon? Well, I think that he's going to try to uh, convey a very, very measured approach. Um, as you as you just noted, I mean, the market has been extremely volatile over the past few days. I think it maybe got a bit of ahead of itself in terms of what some uh, market commentators were expecting in terms of rate rises and quantitative tightening. But I think they're going to basically try to outline a very measured path in terms of, first of all, ending QE, which should be in March. And then potentially we could see also a liftoff in March. There is some speculation around whether um, they might start to signal when quantitative tightening might start to happen. I think that's maybe a little bit premature for today. But I think certainly as well, they're going to acknowledge that, you know, um, the employment levels are maybe consistent with maximum employment in the economy. Inflation remains very high. So there is a need to continue to withdraw this very, very loose uh, monetary policy to withdraw the stimulus and start to move mm -hmm. towards normalization. What is BlackRock as a general statement doing with duration? I mean, is it is it a micro analysis? Are you looking at first, second derivative analysis of duration? What are you doing on the x-axis? Yeah, so in terms of duration, um, obviously, we are starting to go a bit closer to home in terms of um, the interest rate sensitivity around our portfolios. So, for example, where we had been um, short or underweight in the treasuries, for example, we are now a little bit closer to neutral. I think at this stage, given the uncertainty in the market, given the uncertainty around the path um, of growth, that we do expect growth to remain you know, robust and strong, but there are increasing headwinds at the moment. There is 
as you mentioned, more yeah. uncertainty around issues with Ukraine. There are more uncertainties just given the um, slowdowns in various areas, given Omicron and different aspects. So I do think that um, in terms of duration, we are a little bit closer to home and we are keeping it relatively light. Right, right. Uh, John, an important research this morning, always out of Hong Kong with Mr. Major. I thought it was a real clarification of that camp like Steve Englander as well. Let's look at the major note uh, right now. It's real simple. Uh, the conventional wisdom is that changing patterns of central bank bond buying means yields will go up. We beg to differ. Can't get clearer than that, John, the complex interactions, etc. The QT teaser is not solved by just looking at one side. Let's get into the QT teaser a little bit more. Man, I spoke to Bob, Bob Miller of BlackRock, a good friend and colleague of yours, and Rick Reader recently, and they've talked about the importance of that balance sheet reduction. Deutsche Bank are coming out with huge numbers, $1 trillion for 23, $560 billion for the back end of this year. Does that necessarily mean higher yields? That's what Steve Major's getting into over at HSBC. Is the translation that simple? No, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, particularly higher yields. I think as you do start to see the the, you know, the balance sheet reduction, whether it begins um, you know in the second half of this year or you know and progresses into twenty twenty three or, or beyond, um, I, I think Stephen Major is right in that you do see it's more complex than that because on the one hand you do have obviously the market is already pricing um, you know maybe overpricing the level of um, interest rates for this year it's pricing in four hikes that might be a little bit excessive I think also when you get into QT as well then that we might actually start to see that we've seen the back end actually it's almost inverted if you look at the 20s and 30s year part of the curve as well so i don't think it necessarily means higher yields i do think it's a lot more nuanced i completely agree and taking a look at that nuance is the yield curve and how much do you think that the market has overpriced or underpriced projections for longer term growth at this point yes yeah, so projections for longer term growth i mean we do have and continue to have a pretty positive view on growth going forward, notwithstanding the you know the headwinds and uncertainty that we see. So I think at the moment, um, projections around growth they have been revised down uh, by the MF and various different organisations. But we actually think that they are you know it does remain on a pretty robust path. And so uh, we th we think it's pretty fair in terms of what um, either the the Fed um, the you know the the dots are projecting or you know what the market is projecting as well. We think that the growth will remain pretty robust. Marilyn Watson there of BlackRock. Marilyn, as always, thank you very much. Right now, helping us, Bruce Kasman, Chief Economist, Head of Global Economic Research at J.P. Morgan. Bruce, I want to go back to the foundational mandate here, which is economic growth and the ability to create jobs. You mentioned in your note a hiccup of activity. How hiccupy is the hiccup right now? Um... We think it's pretty sharp as you move into the new year. We're looking for the U.S. economy to boast a 7% gain in Q4 and, and something close to 1% in the first quarter of the year. So that's a, a pretty dramatic downward move. I think you're going to see a big drop in consumption in December when we get the report later this week. And I think January is going to be a pretty weak month. The, the hope, though, of course, is that Omicron hits hard. It hits fast but it also leaves fast. And that as we're moving out towards the end of the quarter, we're starting to see this uh, reverse but and get, get growth momentum up. If we go from seven to one or whatever the number is, Feroli's pretty good at this to three digits. But Bruce, if we execute that deceleration, how does a central bank react other than to say we need to wait for the next round of data? Well, I think 
generally the Fed has made the decision that it's pretty far behind the curve. I think it's also made the decision that it's looking at the economy very much the way I just described, which is going to get it's going to get hit by something pretty sharp, but it's going to also um, be pretty short lived. Uh, we think by the time you get to the March meeting, the Fed will be able to see signs that that um, slowdown is starting to turn around. And that's, I think, an important reason why, as we go to this meeting, uh, we don't think the Fed is going to lose its optionality about what it does in March. Uh, it's going to tell us it's scheduled to start hiking in March, but it's going to not give us a sense of how fast that pace is at this point in time. Bruce, you said something in your research that really stuck out to me, that there is a risk. You think it's about one in four that the Fed completely stops buying bonds, buying any assets by February. I assume this to mean not even reinvesting, allowing the balance sheet to really shrink much more quickly. What does that look like in terms of economic ramifications and the reasoning behind it? Well, I think there's a risk that they stop, uh, the, they, they, they move the tapering forward one month and they end the purchases. I don't think that they're going to uh, start uh, winding down the balance sheet as we move into March. And I, and I think the, the issue here is how strong a signal do they want to send? They know they're behind the curve. Do they really need to keep going here? I, I say it's one in four in the sense that they haven't guided us towards that. And actually doing that would be a stronger signal that they're going to get more aggressive here. And as I said, I think at this point, they still want to keep their optionality, re recognizing that they're going to start raising rates in March. And that's still two months away. Bruce, how do you view the balance sheet in terms of a policy tool? I mean, some people are trying to game out how many rate hikes it's equivalent to. What's your view on how the Fed is using this? Well, I think how the Fed is going to use it is easy. How it's going to impact financial conditions is complicated. I think the Fed is going to say, we need to get going. We need to get going faster, both because we want to adjust financial conditions and also because the balance sheet has been so bloated. Uh, we, as I said, I think we're going to put it on a pace that the caps are going to be set um, at, at when it gets to the peak uh, at 100 billion or so a month. Uh, but, and I think the important thing here is the Fed's going to put it on automatic pilot, which is mm -hmm. to say, they are going to let the balance sheet run off. They're going to watch how both the balance sheet and rate moves affect financial conditions. But it's going to be the rate movements that are going to adjust if they're surprised mm -hmm. that they either get too little or too much response in terms of what um, we're seeing in terms of financial conditions and, and their, their goals on hitting inflation and, and growth. Bruce, your shop, and I'm going to go back eight years, if not 10 years, led by Michael Faroli led with an analysis of what the terminal rate of various economic indicators were, which was just stunning. And folks, to cut to the chase, the vision of a potential GDP in the vicinity of 2% or even lower. Recalibrate right now the correct terminal inflation rate. Is it above 4%, which is frightening? Is it at an Adam Posen 3% where he suggests we need a new level of inflation? Or do we go back to something on the edge of Feroli? Well, I guess uh, there's two issues here, terminal inflation and where the Fed needs to go on rates to to make sure we, we kind of stay in that zone. I would start with the idea that the Fed's tolerance level for inflation is probably in the two to three percent range. And I think what they're going to do is set policy uh, to kind of be comfortable that inflation stays above two. But if they feel like it's moving above three on a sustained basis going forward, uh, then they're going to get more aggressive. What is the Fed going to need to do? I think their view of neutral right now is two and a half. Um, I think it's going to be hard to contain inflation just getting to two and a half. And I think actually, even though I think the supply side of the economy looks weak right now, 
I think the ability to generate credit is much stronger than it was uh, earlier. I think uh, we're going to see you're going to feel a need to have higher interest rates to get the same amount of restraint. And I actually think our perceptions of our star over time here are actually going to tilt up. So I would, I would suggest the Fed ultimately is going to have to get well above what it currently perceives as neutral at two and a half before this cycle is over. Are they measured? Are they a Greenspan measured shop? Is Jerome Powell just ripping a page out of Greenspan 101? Um, well, I think we're not going to get that message uh, today. Certainly, Greenspan and both Yellen at the starts of the previous uh, cycles in 15 and, and 04 said they were going to move in a measured, gradual way. I don't think the Fed is going to guarantee that at all. And I think there's a very reasonable chance that um, we start to feel like Greenspan 94 in terms of the way the Fed begins to adjust here. If we can't get inflation down and the economy is, as we're expecting, rebounding pretty strongly into the middle part of the year. Bruce, based on a recent experience with the sell-off that we've seen, the correction in U.S. equities, how high do you think 10-year yields now can get before something breaks? Well, I, I, first of all, I would just emphasize the equity market correction, if it continued, could be a problem. But there's a very big difference when equity markets are correcting because people are repricing the Fed and equity markets are correcting because we have an overhang in housing or we have a, an economy that has got problems otherwise. So I do think you can see equity markets correct without it doing uh, undue damage or even really driving the Fed to change its um, its path. Um, our view is that 10-year yields are going to end the year at two and a quarter. You know, one of the issues on the balance sheet is the balance sheet will clearly put duration in the market, put upward pressure on, on rates. But it's also going to change people's perceptions of how fast and how far the Fed's going to go. And I think there's a, a tension here which is not at all clear. I'm comfortable with our forecast. We get above 2%, but we don't see a, a real spiking in 10-year yields uh, as we go through the year. Hey, Bruce, wonderful, as always. Bruce Kasman there of J.P. Morgan. Thank you, sir. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.